So I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 35, and we'll be spending the bulk of our time tonight. Throughout this Advent season, I have been wearing different outfits. Uh, Most of the time, it's just been a tie or a Christmas Christmas look. Well, obviously, I'm not doing that tonight, uh, wearing my Tanzania shirt, and I'm doing that because, one, after this service, it was a reminder, don't go home before that meeting you're supposed to be leading. Um, Two is that uh, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, can't believe this, uh, we left Tanzania. Our family moved back to to the U.S. um, after having served there, but also as I want to use it as an encouragement to pray for the Rangi people. It is amazing as a church that in just a few years that we have been in existence, that the Lord has not only uh, grown our commitment to the Rangi people of Tanzania, but also uh, we have been able to uh, send out two of our own, uh, Alexis, who we heard from last week, and then uh, it was a blessing this morning for our community group to connect with Emily Crump, who will be here on December 29th. Um, So uh, we want to always remember that we are a church that uh, takes the mission of God seriously. So part of the reason for my dress. Uh, Traditionally, if you follow an Advent calendar, churches that follow an Advent calendar, uh, we are in the third Sunday of Advent, and the Traditionally, the third Sunday of Advent is a focus on joy, and so a lot of our readings tonight and the prayers have been about, the songs we sang uh, were about joy. The first week of Advent, we focus on hope, uh, second week on peace, the third on joy, and then next week we will focus on love. So tonight, though, what I want to talk to you about is, uh, is joy. But specifically, I want to talk about not manufactured, or drawing a contrast, perhaps, between manufactured joy and the magnificent joy that God offers His people. Everywhere we go today, these days, seemingly, well, even this year, it was before Halloween decorations were down, we were being inundated with Christmas. Christmas songs and Christmas decorations and Christmas lights were up. And these are, in a way, by stores and whatnot, to instill joy in the moment of our, uh, um, of our society. Retailers are busy making massive uh, changes to their stores in order to draw people in, to uh, increased spending, I presume. Yesterday we were at a restaurant down uh, in the Kennett Square area and it was all decorated for Christmas. And I, and I realized how almost every nook and cranny of this place was Christmas. And I realized in just a month or so that's all going to be changed to whatever is next. Made me wonder, what in the world Uh, causes retailers to do that. So I went online and I found out that uh, USA Today predicts that over this holiday season, $730 billion will be spent in America of holiday spending. 
$730 billion. So I don't know how much of that will be coming out of your bank account, but that's, uh, that's, a, lot of, that's a lot of dough. Uh, but this is the manufactured joy that I'm talking about. Because here's what I get puzzled about, and I don't know how you feel, and I was vulnerable uh, this morning with my community group, is that um, I've sort of struggled. I've sort of struggled with joy during this season uh, for a number of reasons that I won't go into here. Um, you can ask any of my community group members. They'll let you know. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Inside joke. Um, the joy that is manufactured that our culture works so hard to, does it really last? Because we can be very easily drawn in to finding that kind of joy. Like the money that we've overspent. We've overspent our budget for the presents that we buy. If they go unappreciated or broken or whatever, what happens to the joy when the holiday meals are finished and the cleanup's done? When the relatives have gone or you've left your relatives, does that joy remain? Maybe you'd say the joy comes when the relatives leave. I don't know. But it's a manufactured joy when we return to life as normal. We've got some memories, we've got debt, we've got regret, but does joy, does that joy last? Because there's a lot that we put into this. When I've been, as I've been thinking about it, I've recognized that super Christmas can be really superficial. Now, I'm not here to throw a wet blanket on your celebrations, but it is something we need to think about. Because is that the only kind of joy? Is that the joy that we're supposed to cling to? Family, food, fun times? Or is there a different joy? I think there is. And I think you know where I'm moving us towards. I'd like for us to take a step back out of our culture into a different world. But a real world. A world where there were no lights twinkling. A world where there was no holiday music playing, no countdown to Christmas, no radio stations, nowhere, nowhere was any, were there people anxiously figuring out how and what to buy as that last gift. So it's not our world, but it's a very real world. We find it in the passage of Scripture that Carrie read just earlier in the service in Luke chapter 2. Remember that? You've got shepherds doing what shepherds do. They've, de they, they've done it every day of their lives. Probably these shepherds were not very old in most nomadic societies. Most um, that The shepherds started as young boys and as they got older than they were uh, they moved into a different status. They weren't out with the animals. So most likely these shepherds that we find in Luke chapter 2 were, were younger men. 
And they were doing what they'd always done. It was very simple existence. But this night was different. Because in this night, God saw fit to this group of shepherds to send the general of his army, the angel of the Lord, to visit them. I want to ask you a question. In your mind, in relationship to those shepherds, where was that angel? Someone give me an answer. Where was he? In the sky, right? Flying. Do you know? It doesn't say anything about that in the Bible. We have been so acculturated to think of the angels looking down from above. We don't even know that it's not in the Scriptures. Now, Jana, I'm not putting you on the spot. Everybody else in the room was thinking the exact same thing. What did he say? What did the angel, what did this general of the army, the angel of the Lord, what did he say? He said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The joy of this great news was that a Savior was born. A Savior was born. The Messiah. The Lord. And what happened next? Anyone? The skies were filled, right? No. I didn't say anything about the skies. Verse 13 of Luke 2, And with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, Peace among those with whom He is pleased. Now two weeks ago, if you were here, you'll remember when I was teaching on Isaiah chapter 9, I mentioned that the hope that we have, it says in verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 9, it says, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulders, and His name shall be called, right? Remember this? But then I said, what will determine that? It's going to happen. Verse 7, it says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Anybody remember what I said the word host means in the Hebrew language? It's an army. It's the Hebrew word savah. It's the same name that Israeli Defense Force today uses for their army. The Lord of the armies will do this. That's Isaiah 9. Tonight, the armies show up in Luke chapter 2. So let's put it all together. On this night, on this Judean wilderness, this, uh, this countryside without any flash or any fanaticism, without any music, God sends His armies general to an unlikely band of shepherds to tell them that salvation and deliverance are coming through a boy born unpretentiously in Bethlehem. And God, following up the the general's announcement, sends the army 
of angelic beings to corroborate the general's announcement. And they say that God is supremely worthy. And if He's happy with you, you're going to have peace. And then they're gone. Imagine that. God is supremely worthy. Glory to God in the highest. And if He's happy with you, be at peace. Peace to be, peace to men upon whom His favor rests. If you were in that band of shepherds, how would you feel? How would you feel? Well, the shepherds went off and they found the baby and they glorified Him. So that prepares us, I believe, to look at Isaiah 35 as we consider a different take on Christmas. Not a manufactured joy, but a magnificent joy. A magnificent God-centered joy. Isaiah 35 falls at the end of a lengthy section within the book of Isaiah. And during this section, and from, from around chapter 24 up to 35, there's this back and forth that the prophet is talking about. Back and forth between proclamation of judgment against all those who are not following God's ways to promises of salvation. So there's judgment, salvation, judgment, judgment, salvation, deliverance. And, they are, and he is declaring that returning to God and His ways would bring rest, would bring strength, and would bring salvation. Hold your finger in Isaiah 35 and turn to the left to Isaiah chapter 30. And let's look at verse 15. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. says this, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. <coughs> In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But here's the sad thing. The people weren't willing. The people weren't willing to return on their own accord. They didn't have a heart to return to God. Even though He said, that's where your strength, that's where your rest, that's where your security and deliverance is going to come. They didn't care. They didn't care. Look what it says next verses. But you were unwilling. And you said, nah, we'll flee upon horses. Therefore, you will flee away. What he's talking about in the context of this is from the Assyrian army that was coming. God promised deliverance from their enemy, their, the enemy's armies if they would trust in Him. And they said, no. We'll take things in our own hands. We got this. People are always looking to themselves or to their own resources for their own deliverance and security. Now let's bring this into modern day because our props may be different. We may not be fleeing on horses and we may not be afraid of the Assyrian army. But isn't this really a common experience? We look to other means for our security and our deliverance. We look to friends. We look to government or a wealthy relative for help. 
We look to an education or to American work ethic for an advantage in this life. We look, we turn to alcohol or drugs or holiday gatherings for a blast of dopamine so that all is good. But the reality is, is that after we go there and the dust settles, we're in the same place, maybe a little bit lower. And we sense there's an emptiness of soul. And we feel further from God, and sometimes we even feel angry at God that the things we tried didn't work. This is the attitude of God's people, Israel as we come to Isaiah 35. A hardness of heart towards God's promise. Always looking for help from that which is visible. So as we get to 35, and we, as Lydia just read it, what's the setting? It's pretty depressing, actually. It's desolate and desperate. He talks about a wilderness and a desert talks about weak hands and feeble knees. talks about anxious hearts. talks about blind eyes and deaf ears and lame legs and muted tongues. It talks about burning sand and thirsty ground. It talks about unclean people and fools. It talks about ravenous beasts and jackals. It's not the place you want to hang out. But this, my friends, is the accurate background to Christmas. This is the accurate background. This is God's opinion of why Christmas matters. Really. Sin and its devastating consequences have ravaged the world and the people in it. And it's true today as it was in 701 B.C. when Isaiah wrote these words. We're not innocent. We are just as complicit in the desperation of this world. Every time, from the smallest of child to the oldest in us, every time we choose to exalt ourselves, every time we try to do life on our own, every time we say, nah, I got this. We live for our own comfort. We live for our own glory. We live for our own exaltation. We say yes to what Isaiah was writing about. But here's the truth, and I know this because I know, I mean, we talked about it this morning in our group. I recognize it in my own soul, and I know it's true from human nature. That we all have an emptiness in our soul. Everybody. Christian and non-Christian. Everybody. Because none of us are free or immune from the effects of sin. We know the desolation of soul. We know that living independent of God doesn't satisfy or produce lasting joy. Do you not know that? 
You try and try, you climb the ladder, and whatever ladder you want to try to climb, and you get to that rung and you realize it's not any better up here. And it's into that desperation that God's promise through the pen of the prophet in the 8th century B.C. writes verse 4 of Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Do you hear the angel? Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Be strong. Fear not. God's coming in His vengeance to save you. Now, tried to do this already, but I'm going to ask you to do it again. Let's try to set everything aside that you think about Christmas. I mean, get the garland out and the star out and all this stuff gone, the wreaths gone, the trees gone, the lights gone, everything that our culture pumps out to convince us that Christmas is awesome. And I want to ask you a question. Have you ever thought of the fact that vengeance drove Christmas? Vengeance was the motivation for Christmas. Vengeance. When we think of vengeance, we don't think of meek and mild babies, no no crying he makes. We don't think of, I love thee, Lord Jesus, look down from above and stay by my cradle. I think I got the words wrong, something there, till morning is nigh. That doesn't rhyme. But anyways, you know what I'm talking about. We don't think of meek and mild. We don't think of babies when we think of vengeance. We don't think of perfect tunes and choirs when we think of vengeance. We don't think of orchestra masterpieces when we think of vengeance. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines vengeance as punishment inflicted in retaliation for an injury or offense to an extreme or excessive degree. That's what vengeance is. According to Isaiah 35.4, vengeance drives Christmas. God's vengeance. That doesn't look good on a Christmas card. Vengeance to you. Thinking about you. This is the irony though of the incarnation. Through the helplessness of a baby, God would deal violently with sin. Let me say that again. Through the helplessness of a baby, God would do violently, would deal violently with sin. Look at what Isaiah says next after verse 4. He says, 
then. Behold, verse 4, Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Blind eyes open, deaf ears unstopped, lame men leaking, muted tongues singing for joy. Friends, all of these things happened in Jesus' ministry. All of them. This prophecy written 701 years approximately before the birth of Jesus Christ of Nazareth predicted that the vengeance of God would send Jesus Christ to deal violently because An offense had happened. And the offense is called sin. We see all these things happening in the ministry of the incarnate Son of God. And we see see the deliverance of God demonstrating His power over the effects of sin in this world. 1 John 3, verse 8 says, The appearing of the Son of Man was to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. One of those works, some of those works have to do with blind eyes, deaf ears, lame men, and muted tongues singing. That will not be the inheritance of God's people for eternity. Praise God. But it's much more than blind eyes, deaf ears, lame men, and muted tongues. The power that God, through Jesus Christ, enacted was an act of vengeance upon Satan in fulfillment of what he said in the garden in Genesis 3.15. God's first pronouncement of deliverance was to... Satan, the spirit within the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, meaning the child, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The vengeance of God started in Bethlehem, but it was consummated at Calvary with a crushing blow to the head of Satan. And his plan. Isaiah 34, 35, verse 4b says, He will come and He will save you. Bethlehem was never the end. You know that. Bethlehem was the means to get to Calvary. Because God said He would come and He would save us. But Isaiah continues in chapter 35 by saying that there is a deliverance that provides a way back to God. Look at Isaiah 35, verse 8. It says, And a highway shall be there. In this desert, in this desolate place, a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. 
goes on to describe who's allowed on the highway and who's not. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they'll not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come up. There is peace there on this way. But who is on it? In verse 9 and verse 10. The redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. The redeemed and the ransomed. You see the connection? The vengeance of God that said, I will come and save you entered into our world through a baby that grew up to die on a cross to redeem and to ransom people back to God. And to pave a highway of joy. Throughout this chapter, Isaiah describes the environment as a desert. Look in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. I, I didn't really understand what that imagery meant until we lived. It's another reason I'm wearing this shirt. When we lived in Tanzania, where we lived was in a semi-arid desert. For eight months out of the year, there was no rain. Now, when we visited it for the first time, we showed up at the end of the rainy season. And man, it was nice. And then it stopped raining, which seemed nice for a while. And then it didn't rain. Didn't rain. Didn't rain. Everything got dry and dusty. By the end of that eight months, it was hard to breathe. There was so much dust in the air. Cars would go down the road and just just dust. You're just sucking it in. It was awful. It was a barren place. You show up and you're like, oh, how do people live here? And then January comes. And the rain comes. And it's amazing in the desert what happens. It's like life is right there under the surface. And the rain's coming. Within like two days, you see green. And within a week, you see flowers all over the place. What looked dead comes back to life. Recycled by the rains. This is a picture, I believe, that through Isaiah, God is saying what your soul looks like. And it's a picture of God's intention for Christmas. God's vengeance upon sin and Satan in your life. Where sin brings deadness to your soul, the incarnate vengeance brings life. Where sin 
has put a wall between you and God, the incarnate vengeance builds a highway. And you're invited to walk on, step on it, and sing for joy on your way back to God. How's that sound? That sounds like magnificent joy. So as we prepare to take communion, I want to, I want to ask you to ask yourself this question. Tonight, what is the source of your joy? In reality, what is the source of your joy? I confess this morning that I have struggled to find joy, and the reason is is because I have I've been just struggling to look past what our culture keeps pumping at me. But I know it doesn't give real joy. What's the source of your joy? Tonight. Have you bought into what this culture has defined Christmas to be? Which has some pretty nice spots to it, right? Spending time with family is not bad. Giving gifts to people you care about, it's not bad. Letting people know that you love them, that's not bad. But it is not the joy-producing heart of God that sent His Son into this world. So what's the source of your joy? Is it the Lord and His deliverance? I want this text to be a clarion call to us. Along with the heavenly host that was with those shepherds, that there is good news of great joy tonight. A Savior has been born. A Savior has been born. And that Savior came with a vengeance to save you. With such a vengeance, it pushed through every temptation and He said no. With a vengeance that He went every opportunity to avert the cross and to avoid the cross, He said no. With a vengeance that took Him all the way to Calvary. Through the mockery of a trial. Through resisting the temptation saying, if you truly are the Son of Man, call now and let the angels call down an army of angels. And He said no. Because the vengeance put the Son of Man on that path to redeem and to ransom you. Good news of great joy. And that redemption has built a highway for you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way. He is the highway. It's a highway of joy. Are you on that way tonight? Are you on that way? If you're not, why not? Who's better than Jesus? Return to the Lord. Return to the highway that Jesus in His incarnation and in His death and resurrection paid for you. 
Second thing I want us to remember as we're going to be taking communion is that the highway that Jesus paved, the highway of singing for joy, is called the way of holiness. It's not just the way of getting out of hell. It's the way of holiness. I'm glad I'm not going to hell. (laughs) That causes me to sing, right? But that isn't the only thing. It's the way of holiness. And I wondered about myself, and I'm asking you to ask yourself this question. Could it be that my lack of God-centered joy was because I was not walking in holiness? And that takes a lot of... To answer that question is different for all of us. Holiness is being set apart for the Lord. And there's a lot of different ways that you can be set apart for the Lord. And I think in my own heart, I just... I'd I'd stepped aside from holiness, being set apart for Christ, and just sort of bought into the Christmas spirit. So as we take communion, I want to encourage you to return back to God and joyfully sing as you consider the meaning of His incarnate vengeance for you. I ask Luke to come up and I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for tonight.